Well, why don't you find your seats and you can take your Bibles and uh, go with me to the book of Exodus. Uh, We are going to be in Exodus uh, chapter 9. We're going to be kind of all over the place. We're going to be finishing out chapters 9, 10, and 11 uh, today in the book of Exodus. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, we want you to have one. Our ushers are coming around. You can just get their attention. They'll give you one, or you can follow along with us on the Bible app. Uh, we are looking at the 10 plagues, and so to do that, um, this, I'm going to give you the application of this up front. Can I do that? So, so here's what I want to show you. These are uh, six distinctives of our church. And any chance I get, I need to do a better job of this. These are the things that, that we are pursuing. Uh, any chance I get to highlight this, we, we want to be reminded, these are the things that we want to be true of us as a church. And so today, in uh, the Ten Plagues, we're actually going to highlight two of our six distinctives as a church, all right? The, the two that we're going to highlight, one is, is passionate worship, which I hope we've just done, that we're going to lift high the name of Jesus in worship. And the second that we're going to see in, in application of what we're reading is courageous evangelism, that we want to go and boldly declare that Jesus is the Savior. We want to be a worshiping and sending church. Which is why uh, we've been saying all, all year, this has kind of been our emphasis, and we end our services by saying this, we want you to go love Christ and live sent to be a worshiping and ascending church. That's what we just sang, that we would open up our eyes and see how glorious and awesome he is, we would worship him, and, and then lead me in your love to those around me. We want to share the love of Christ. You see, the reason that, that we go, uh, the, the reason that we go and live sent is because there are people in our community and around the world who do not yet worship Jesus Christ. Uh, I was on my way in this morning. Many of you saw. We got uh, a little bit of activity out here on the soccer fields and a lot of people out. There's a lot of people out there. And it almost broke my heart to just think, there's a lot of people in our community spending time just um, playing soccer, that's not a bad thing, um, but not as many of them coming in to really worship together. And that ought to, uh, that ought to motivate us. Think about this. It's the, it's the vertical worship of our great God that propels the horizontal advancement of the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, and there are people that don't do that yet. And we want them to know that only he is worthy of our worship, that only he can save us from our sins, only he can uh, rescue us from the foolishness of running after anything else that the world says is going to satisfy, but we know it's not. And he's, he's the one that can change our hearts so that we actually want to worship him. We love him, and, and we find our greatest joy and satisfaction in him. We, we want to be a church that is passionately in love with Jesus. So much so that there's no fear that's going to stop us from talking about him to our lost family and neighbors and co-workers, people that need to know that he is our Savior. So I get to preach on that today. That's actually another one of our uh, distinctives is, is uh, bold preaching. And, and the way we do that is, is really uh, working through books of the Bible. I think it's healthy for us to do that and just let the message of God's Word speak to us. And, and so you might not expect to see um, those distinctives that I just talked about, worship and evangelism, in, uh, on display in the book of Exodus, especially in the ten plagues, Right? But I want to contend with you this morning that that's exactly what the ten plagues are really all about and supposed to teach us. 
And you think about what's going on here. The, the, the plagues uh, here are, it's, it's this battle between the Lord and Egypt. And it's really a demonstration of who God is, showing his matchless, incredible power that he has and the foolishness of trusting in anything else. The point of the ten plagues is to show you that the Lord is the God. And he will be known. He's making himself known in this. So let me put up our, our, our chart again. Here are uh, the ten plagues. Last week we looked through uh, the first six of these. So this is kind of part two now. All right, We're going to finish out with uh, uh, the, the plagues seven, eight, nine, and ten. And, and right here in plague number seven, the hail, I think this actually reiterates the reason that why uh, God is even doing this. So if you've got your Bibles there, Exodus chapter 9, uh, follow with me right in verse 13. You're going to see. Here's, here's the reason, okay? Starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that, purpose clause, there's a reason, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, there's the reason again, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Here's what God's doing, okay? The reason that we're studying these, the thing that we're supposed to get out of this is that God is going to make himself known. He will be known. He is making himself known to the Egyptians. And the reason, verse 14, is that they may know this, that there is none like me in all the earth. These ten plagues are a direct attack, as we saw uh, last week. These are kind of the attack on the, on the false gods that the Egyptians have been uh, trusting in for protection and, and provision and, and blessing. Remember, they looked to uh, the Nile River, uh, or they looked to, a, they, they had a frog god, they had a bull god. They've got gods over all the land and the, the, the sea and the sky, but it's so apparent that, that these gods have nothing on the Lord Almighty. God's the one who created, he's in absolute control here. And so he says to Pharaoh, verse 15, for by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you. Like, listen, I didn't have to use ten plagues. I could have just taken you out like that. So why? Why, why is God sending ten plagues? Well, the reason's right there in verse 16. It's for this purpose I have raised you up. To show you my power. I mean, honestly, this should be pretty obvious. We saw at the very beginning of, of these plagues, the, the Egyptian magicians, remember, they were trying to uh, kind of replicate, duplicate these signs and do it themselves, and they could only hang for about two of those, and, and, and even then, they were really no, pat, no, no match. They were powerless to really do anything about it, try to take it away. They couldn't keep up. They couldn't stop it. It's so obvious that God is more powerful here. And he's just proving that nobody compares. But then also this, verse 16, uh, so that my name may be proclaimed. Where? In all the earth. So listen, God is putting on a show here in Egypt. 
But it was never just so that the Egyptians and Israel could see this. He is putting on such a display of his character and his power that that, that the news of this is just going to echo around the world. It's going to go viral. Everybody's going to know. So here's here's the big idea. If you want to take notes this morning, here's the thing that I think uh, we should be driving towards in the text. Uh, Note this. The Lord has revealed himself so that we would know him and proclaim his name in all the earth. I'm just taking that right from the text. That's, that's what he wants. He wants us to know who he is and proclaim his name in all the earth. To know the Lord and then to make him known. You've got to remember that the, the, Egypt is uh, this political superpower and, and, and Pharaoh is this anti-God figure and the Lord is just taking them out. I mean, he is demolishing all of their uh, false idols and gods that they're serving. This is, this is the greatest demonstration of God's power in the Old Testament. And he's rescuing his people out of slavery in the defining act of salvation in the Old Testament. So much of Scripture is going to come back and point back to what God is doing right here. The reason that we have this story is so that we would better understand the God that we're worshiping and that we would know what we're supposed to tell others about him. Okay? But I want to, I want to um, time out, pause here just a minute, because I want to make sure that we don't um, get the wrong application on this. We read through the plagues, and that helps us understand who God is and what we're supposed to tell other people about him. And it's important that you recognize a couple things. One, don't read the plagues and think, if you don't shape up, and if you don't get your life in order, God's going to send plagues on you. Right? Like if you sleep in and you skip your Bible reading, you're going to wake up with a bunch of frogs in your bed sheets. Or, or, you know, if you don't give money to the church, then God's going to send hail and take out your car and all your stuff. And like, that's, that's not what we're supposed to read in the plagues. Nor, and I think this one might be a little bit uh, more dangerous as well, uh, more prevalent at least, uh, nor are we supposed to um, attribute natural disasters as the direct judgment of God on sinful countries. Unfortunately, I've actually heard Preachers who would do this. Because oh, look, look what God did to Egypt, right? And so the reason that those wildfires are starting, or the reason that hurricane hit, it, no, 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 misapplication of the text, okay? But the reason, the things that we are supposed to glean from this as we're uh, reading through these, are, it's, it's to show us who God is. That we really would know him better and that we would make him known and know what to tell other people about him. So let me give you two things about the Lord that we must know and proclaim as he reveals himself in the plagues. Here's one. If you're taking notes, note this. The first is that he must be feared. Got to fear the Lord. Okay, so again, I'm not saying that we threaten people with plagues if they don't obey the Lord. But but I, I think about our culture. I think about where we're at, where we're living. We need to recover a sense of the fear of the Lord. That, that, that we would know that, that he is great and he is glorious and there'd be a sense of standing back in awe of God. And there would be a deeper sense of, of reverence and respect for him. 
Like I realize as you're going out and, and talking to people, you don't want to uh, scare people off, run, run them off in, 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 in the truth of what God's Word says. And so these are the kind of stories that we actually, uh, you know, we prefer to hide these stories until after somebody becomes a Christian, right? Like, like it's, it's uh, easier to talk about God's love and the fact that he's, he's kind and he's wonderful. And let's focus on those Bible stories. It's, it's not very popular to talk about God as, as an authority and, and as the authority and, as, and his judgment and his wrath against sin. Like, we, 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 want, we want a God that we're kind of comfortable with. And it's not, it's not easy to talk about God in these terms. But listen, listen, if we don't see him for who he truly is, we're not going to fear him. And if we don't fear the Lord, then what happens is this, this is how we end up living in, in a culture, in a world that's just you know, celebrating and flaunting their rebellion, running after all sorts of false gods and don't give a rip and living in sin and, and, and shrugging off any sense of, of shame and guilt in any of that. In fact, actually turning it and, and, and shaming and demonizing anybody who would stand up and, and say, wait, 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 no, this is wrong, this is sin. And somehow those people are in the wrong. Because we don't fear the Lord. And also I think about evangelism. We actually lose a lot uh, when we downplay God's true character. Because until you embrace the fear of the Lord, talking about Jesus is going to be a lot more uh, like a sales pitch. And because you don't want to lose the sale, like, well, I'm not going to talk about the, you know, the judgment and uh, the wrath and, and his authority and all of that. We, so, so, so we don't want to scare them with that. So we just end up kind of giving people uh, this impression that you think Jesus could maybe add something to their life. Like you should, you know, you should try him out. See if you, see if you like him. Like he's a product. But if he's holy, if if he is just in his judgment of sin, if he's not those things, then what do you need Jesus for? It doesn't really, the gospel story doesn't make a whole lot of sense then. Instead of good news for sinners that, that desperately need it, and instead of like celebrating um, amazing grace that just blows you away, we end up uh, trying marketing techniques to try to interest people who are just disinterested and, and uh, they could care less what the Bible says. They have no fear of the Lord. They don't think he's a big deal. But the God of Exodus doesn't let us miss the fact that he is a God who is to be feared. There's no way you can read the plagues and miss that. Here's what he says, verse 14. Look at it again. He says to Pharaoh, this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. What, what, what he means by that, he's saying the, it's the full weight, the full force. I'm sending them all on you yourself. Literally, the Hebrew says, on your heart. Pharaoh, I'm going to put all of this, you're going to feel the full weight and the full force of this on your heart. Why, why his heart? Because his heart is hard. Remember the first time that Moses showed up and said, thus says the Lord. You remember what Pharaoh said to him? He turns around and says, who's the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord. Remember, Pharaoh, Pharaoh he, he's, not, he, he, he's okay with Israel having a God. I mean, Egypt's got all sorts of gods. But the thing that offends him is that this God is saying he is the God and everyone must submit and obey him. That's offensive. 
And I know we, like, dump on Pharaoh all the time because he's the bad guy. I mean, obviously, we're not like Pharaoh. But, but can we just be honest? Like, anytime we sin, all of us in sin are, are kind of feeling the same way. That's basically what we're saying to God. Who are you to tell me what I got to do? I do what I want. See, that's the heart of rebellion. And it's why sinners need to be reminded, wait, time out. Do you know who you're talking to? Do you realize who he is? He says, I'm going to make myself known so that you would know that there is none like me. He's the only God. He's he's showing like the Nile River, yeah, not a God. The, The frog God, not a real God. The bull got, like, not not even close. I mean, we're up to six plagues already. You would think that Pharaoh would start to get the hint. Like, okay, this isn't working. Like, obviously, he's a little bit more powerful. But instead, verse 17, here's what God says. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. He's still so full of pride, and he's not going to humble himself. He refuses to acknowledge the Lord as the only God and submit. And so God has to send the seventh plague. Here it is, uh, chapter 9, verse 23. Moses, verse 23, Moses stretched out his staff. The Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. It struck down every plant. It broke every tree. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So here comes hail and fire, and, and, and there's a part of me that's just saying, like, well, what, where'd your gods go? Like, maybe, maybe you remember this one. I've got a picture of this guy. Uh, this is the bull god, Apis. Well, we saw him last time with the, the, the livestock. Well, they got a plague, and now any of them that were left, they were out in the field. The hail comes down, and what happens to all the livestock? They're lying there dead. Or, or what about this next guy? This is the god Geb. He's the one that's supposed to make all the crops grow. What happens when the hail comes down? The hail strikes down all the plants and all the vegetation. And then uh, God actually in chapter 10, he sends the eighth plague. The eighth plague is the locusts. Locusts are coming in. I mean, John the Baptist would have been pretty excited about that. Like, we got like food, but that's not the point. What he's really saying, these locusts are coming in and finishing off whatever's left. But you're not doing a very good job of protecting here, guys. Hey, false gods, you had one job. And then with the ninth plague, chapter 10, verse 22, Moses stretched out his hand toward the heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Okay, so this would have been a direct attack on this next god, and and this one I'm pretty sure you know. This is Ra. The sun god. You see the, the sun over his head? This is one of the most important, one of the most powerful gods that the Egyptians would have worshipped. Do you not think that they immediately saw the significance of what was happening here? This is their sun god, and now all of a sudden there's no sunlight in Egypt. What's God proving? There's no god like me! These don't stand a chance. What are these? God is the creator, and he is absolutely in control. But I want to I jump back. I know we're kind of jumping all over the place here today. Uh, but I, I want to go back to the seventh plague. And something happens here that, that kind of proves Pharaoh's just not getting it. 
And back in chapter 9, verse 27, this is after God sends the hail, he's wiping all sorts of stuff out. It almost seems like Pharaoh's ready to give in here. Verse, verse 27, chapter 9, here's what it says. This time, Pharaoh says to the Lord, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord. I'll, I'll let you go. We read that and we're like, wow, I mean, that's, that's pretty encouraging, right? I mean, there's no way he could have denied God's power. I mean, that's uh, on display He's got to deal with that, but it seems like, like Pharaoh is ready to actually confess his sin. Like he's, it's just the beginning of repentance here. Like he's, he's, he's ready to obey God. That's pretty cool. The problem is it's not genuine. And Moses knows it. Look at verse 30. Moses said to them, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Pharaoh doesn't actually fear God yet. And he actually proves it because in verse 34, by the end of this, when, when, when he saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and he hardened his heart. Look, looked good for a moment. Looked like, looked like he was kind of changing his mind, ready to obey. And then as soon as you know, like the plague is gone, he changes his mind, hardens his heart, And won't let him go. This is what we call false repentance. This is false repentance. Pharaoh doesn't fear the Lord, just the consequences. Um, I was telling Carissa that I was preaching on false repentance, and she said, oh, like Javen. I told you he's our walking sermon illustration. The kid says, sorry, like 20 times a day. Goes and punches his brother and gets disciplined for that and says he's sorry. And then 10 minutes later, what's he doing? Right? This is actually something that I think still exists in the church today, though. Because Paul addresses this. Check this out. Here's, here, here's what uh, Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For... Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief... So, so, so there's a distinction there. He's saying there's a difference. There's a difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Worldly grief produces death. Have you ever seen this in someone? I mean, someone just like... Uh, they, they sin, they messed up, and they know it. I mean, they're in a world of hurt. They're, they're, they're really struggling with this. And it looked like they were, they were broken in their sin. It looked like they were, they were you know, ready to change. But then after a while, or as soon as the, the trouble starts to die down, they're right back into it, right back into sin. You see, there's a difference between uh, this godly grief and worldly grief. Worldly grief and false repentance is when you're sorry that you got caught. Or, or you're, 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 you, you hate the consequences. 
You don't like what you're having to deal with. You don't like how this makes you feel. You don't like that you got hurt or that somebody else got hurt, and so you feel bad. You feel terrible that somebody else got hurt, but your emotions don't produce change. You see, saying sorry, but then running right back into it as soon as the coast is clear is false repentance, no matter how big the tears were. It's probably likely that some of you have seen this in others and have even been hurt by people that have done this. Said they were sorry, said they were going to change, never doing this again, and then they did. But I think it's also possible that this has been true of, of you and your life too. I think this is a warning for all of us. We've got to see the difference here that, that, that worldly grief, it can look sincere for a moment, but it's really all about me. Because I don't like the way this makes me feel, or I don't like what happened to me, or I don't want to deal with this anymore. Um, but it's not based on a fear of the Lord. See, a true fear of the Lord leads to a hatred of sin. I, I, I just, I am grieved over this sin that's in my heart and how this sin offends a holy God that loves me. And true repentance is not just feeling bad about it. It's not just like confessing and then saying sorry. True repentance includes a change of direction. I was going this direction. I knew what I was doing. And then I, I came to realize this is, this is wrong. This is sin. And I'm confessing of that. And I'm turning from that sin to Christ and finding victory over that sin because that sin doesn't have any power over me. Because in Christ, I'm dead to that sin and I've been set free. And so there's a, a change of direction now. Now some of you are kind of wrestling with this because um, this has happened in your life where you maybe there's a particular issue, particular sin, that it just feels like you keep... You keep wrestling with this one, and you're trying, but it feels like you're just kind of stuck in it. It feels like you're still struggling with it. It feels like uh, you're, you're caught and you need some help. Listen, we want to help you. I've been there. I get it. But if you've never turned from that sin or you've not experienced victory, or, or there's this pattern that's developing of you messing up and feeling bad and saying sorry but never changing, that's false repentance. I am so thankful for the people that God has placed in my life who had the courage and loved me enough to call me out on that. I think we all need to really take a, a good, hard look at who the Lord is and let the fear of the Lord help us to look up. Fear of the Lord means I'm, I'm, I'm looking up and it produces this urgency to deal with the sin in my heart. Not just to selfishly avoid consequences. But godly grief runs back to the cross. Because it's at the cross where I remember this, it's not based on my performance. Like I am loved by God. And, and, and I don't 
I don't have to earn that, and I can't lose that today. He just loves me, and I rest in the gospel then. But then uh, godly grief also walks by the power of the Spirit, okay, alongside of loving biblical community to help put this sin to death. I'm not going back to this anymore. I'm not just going to live in this pattern of, you know, feeling bad and saying sorry, but never actually changing. And I want to encourage some of you, um, if you're there and you're recognizing, like, maybe, maybe this is true of me. Like, if you're wondering, ask your spouse. They'll tell you. But if you're recognizing, like, yeah, like, I, I need to have some victory here. Can I just urge you? This is where the fear of the Lord helps us to realize, don't, don't shrug it off. It's a big deal. And when we see sin, we're going to confess that sin. That means we would actually even share that with a brother or a sister in Christ. That's why we have small groups of people. We walk together in these things. And listen, there's a welcome here without judgment. It's okay to not be okay. We're all not okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. And we love you enough to help you. And so we confess those things and we open up God's word and we read God's word together and we pray together and we're asking the Lord to help us turn from that sin to him. And if somebody, because of this, comes up to you this week and actually starts to open up and confess and Share, please do not be like, okay, that's weird. I'll pray for you. Like, that's, like, do it, okay? This is what we're here for, that we would walk with them, spend time with them, meet regularly with them, pray with them, read God's word together, check in on them, help them overcome sin and temptation. We, we ought to be looking at this and realizing, like, God is a God to be feared. Do, do, I, do I fear the Lord? And that ought to be producing in our church humility and repentance and a sense of awe and reverence when we come to worship him. But Pharaoh does not fear the Lord. Chapter 10, God says to him, how long are you going to refuse to humble yourself before me? And it's even getting to the point, verse 7, chapter 10, verse 7, where his servants actually look to him and, and, and the servants of Pharaoh, they're like, let these men go. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? I mean, they're looking around at what's happening in all these plagues. They're like, man, this is, this is crazy. This is getting out of hand. Somebody's got to stop this guy, but he's not going to listen. In fact, then he does it again, chapter 10, verse 16. Pharaoh says, I have sinned against the Lord. Starting to sound familiar. Sounds like a little pattern. Forgive my sin, please, only this once. Plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Kind of sounds good, but we know where his heart's at. It's not real repentance. And so God is pressing in. It's going to cost him. The Lord actually keeps hardening his heart so that he can really show his power. And so that the Lord's name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is what God's doing here. But it's not just that Egypt would know. Check out chapter 10, uh, verse 1. Check this out. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. Like they're, Okay, Egypt's going to know who they're dealing with. I'm going to show them. But then watch verse 2. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. See, part of the reason that God is putting on this display of his power is so that his people would know him and that they would then tell future generations. There's a responsibility to pass on these events, to tell the story of what God has done here so that others will know that only he is God. Only God. It's foolish to trust in anything else. It's not going to work. He is the creator. He deserves all of the glory, and he will not share his glory with another. And he is holy, and he is just in his judgment of sin. There needs to be a sense of awe and reverence. And I'm telling you, I realize that when you're out sharing the gospel, this may not be the first thing that you want to run to, but the people that are in your office The people that live next to you, the people that are in your home, the people that are in your sphere of influence, they they need to know this. That he is a God who must be feared. And I think it's only when we know that can you actually understand and appreciate this second truth about God. Uh, Note this. Here's the second truth. That only he can save. See, he's a God who must be feared. But he's also the God who can save us. Back, back in the seventh plague, I, I told you I'm jumping all around here, but chapter 9, before God sends the hail, okay, before it starts coming, like it's getting serious, it's getting dark, but before that happens, look at verse 18. Verse 18, chapter 9, God says, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very, very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from, from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and all his livestock in the field. I just want you to notice something. God is making himself known to the Egyptians, but it's pretty cool that he's also here giving them a chance to avoid the effects of this plague. You ever been caught in a hailstorm? When the hail starts, and I'm not talking like little bitty, you know, like, oh, that's kind of cute. But, like, I'm talking like, man, this is getting dangerous. What do you do? You run for cover. That's what you do. He's giving them an opportunity to uh, run and hide and seek shelter. And, And look at verse 20. This is crazy. Because apparently some of the Egyptians are starting to get it. It says that whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh. That that, that seems like some of the Egyptians are actually beginning to understand and and, and beginning to fear the Lord. Okay, so this is going to be really cool. I'm going to show you something in chapter 12. And and this is chapter 12, verse 38. This is when God is, uh, Moses is explaining when they actually are walking out of Egypt. So they're leaving Egypt. Here's what it says. Check this out. A mixed Multitude also went up with them. 
Okay, so when we think about, you know, this, this story, we always think it's like Egypt and Israel and Israel goes out. Well, guess what? The text says that it wasn't just the Israelites that left and went out of Egypt. Apparently, there's other people going with them too. And we don't know whether these people really came to truly trust in the Lord. But do you see God's heart? God's heart is for the nations. God's intention was always that the nations would come to know him and love him. It wasn't just for his people, Israel. Man, there may have been people watching these plagues and thinking like, man, our God can't do what this God can. He's the only one who can save. And then we come to chapter 11. In chapter 11, God sends all nine plagues, hail, locusts, darkness. Now chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go. When he lets you go, he'll drive away, drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So, so listen, what God is proving, he's, just, he's demonstrating that he is absolutely in control to the point where the Israelites can literally go up to the Egyptians and just ask them for their stuff. And God has given them favor. Who's in control here? Verse 4, Moses says, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. God is bringing death to Egypt. And I think it's pretty cool to see that he's actually making a distinction with his people. He's sending judgment, but his people are not going to experience his wrath. And you have to remember this. It's not because Israel deserves it, okay? They got hard hearts too. In fact, we're going to see that when, once they get out into the wilderness alone with God. But, but it's God's mercy. And it's his grace that's undeserved. That, that he would rescue them out of this darkness, out of this death, and lead them out of slavery in Egypt. And that's a picture of our salvation. This is what we're supposed to know and proclaim. Because knowing God's grace and his mercy to save sinners who don't deserve it, like that leads to passionate worship. 
Like, like when we know what we deserve, but because of Jesus, instead of wrath and judgment, we have his favor and, and he loves us. I mean, that, 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 that ought to just help us worship Jesus with just greater love and surrender. And because um, we worship him, it also leads to courageous evangelism. Because we fear the Lord, we don't fear the awkward conversations with our neighbors, with our coworkers. And we don't fear the rejection that might happen when we do. I think about those people that are in your sphere of influence that the Lord has placed right there. Can just think about those people. Do they know this? I mean, do they know that he is a God to be feared, but that only he can save? And what are you going to do about it? Now, let me give you, I'm going to end a little weird here. I'm going to give you homework, okay? Can I do that? Is that all right? Um, we, just, <laughs> we, we just read, we, we preached through a lot in the last two weeks, and uh, we don't normally take that much text uh, but we just preached through like five chapters, and, and next week we're actually going to get into chapter 12. And so uh, I want you to do something that would be really helpful for you to understand and not miss anything here. Would you just go back this week, spend time this week reading through chapter 7 through 12. That's a lot, but we're covering a lot in this, and I don't want you to miss it. Go back and read chapter 7 through 12. Next week we're actually going to... Uh, really look a little bit more in depth at this 10th plague and, and really see the Passover. And because of that, uh, we also are going to be celebrating a Passover Seder together. That means a Passover meal. All right? We're not going to do a full meal, uh, but it's not this Wednesday, but the next Wednesday. On June 26th, all right? if you have your calendar, you just put it on, uh, on your calendar. June 26th, that's a Wednesday night at 7 o'clock at Old Town Hall. Uh, because we're kind of preaching through this and we're coming to the Passover, I thought, man, why don't we, why don't we do that? Why don't we uh, spend, this is, this is going to be a cultural experience, and I just want to show you what a, a, a Passover Seder really looks like. But the whole purpose of this, bring some friends. This is going to be a worshipful experience. It's also going to be an opportunity for us to share the gospel because I want to show you how Jesus is evident in the elements of the Passover. Okay? I'm so thankful for what Christ has done. This is why we worship. This is why we want to make him known. Let me pray for us, and we'll continue to worship here. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your mercy and grace to us. Thank you uh, that you are great and glorious. There is no God like you. I pray that you would impress that on our hearts. Lord, I, I pray that you would uh, convict us where we have been too flippant. We, we just run in, and, and, and we don't think about the fact that you're our creator. You made us. You deserve all the glory, and, and uh, Lord, you're, you are a jealous God as well. And Lord, when we run after other things and, and, and we put other things as a greater priority to you, then, then that's sin. And I pray that you would bring conviction. But Lord, I also pray that you'd help us to run to the cross and see your mercy and your grace to us. I pray that we would love you and delight in you. We give you praise that, that you know us and that you care enough to make yourself known. Lord, I pray uh, that as you make yourself known, we would have a passion for your glory and we would have a passion to, uh, to see others come to know you and love you. So would you use us in that? Help us to be bold witnesses this week and take the opportunities that we have to tell other people that you are a God who needs to be feared, but you are a God who loves and you're a God who saves. And 
we give you praise for it in Jesus' name.